Uh, if you have Bibles, we are going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. Uh, 2 Corinthians is kind of toward the end of your Bible. If you're using one of those black hardcover ones that Dana mentioned a moment ago, uh, page 968 uh, is where you're going to find today's text. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 6 through 15 is where we are. Uh, as Dana mentioned too, only two weeks left remain in this series we've been in this summer, the Rhythms of Grace series. I don't know if it feels like this to you, but it feels like summer is just flying uh, past. And so we are nearing the end of this series. Uh, but what I hope that you've heard through these weeks is that we really hope as a church this is more than just a series. Uh, that these nine rhythms are things we need to be continually equipped in as we are formed into disciples of Jesus. Um, that's really the big idea of this series and of what we'll be doing after this series about the rhythms of grace in the months and years to come. All of these rhythms are a critical answer to the main question, what does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus Christ? And so today we're considering the rhythm of generosity. Generosity. Uh, generosity, or money, is an aspect of Christian discipleship which is common and easy for the church to miss. So in some circles, money is talked about all the time in the church, as if money is, is kind of the main issue, the issue of the Christian life. Uh, and in both distant and recent history, in the present, there are tragically far too many examples of Christians and Christian leaders who manipulate people, uh, manipulate the Bible, in order to acquire and then to use money in ways that are completely contradictory to the design, to the purposes of God. And so consequently, people both inside and outside the church, when they hear a pastor or they hear a church or a Christian talk about money or a topic like generosity, it can immediately, and maybe you find yourself there in this very moment, can immediately make you filled with suspicion or filled with cynicism. Now in other circles, and as I've reflected on this, this is the error that I'm personally a lot more inclined to. We don't talk about money enough. We don't talk about money enough. Because if not here, where else can we talk about it? How are we supposed to learn and to be formed as these followers of Jesus in the way that we use money? Uh, how are those of us that are newer to Christianity or exploring Christianity, or how are those of us who are children in our midst supposed to learn what that looks like in real life? Money has a, a deep and inseparable tie to our hearts. We heard it in the scripture reading this morning before confession. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And so money also has this gravitational kind of pull. And its proclivity, its pull, is not into faithfulness. It, its, its proclivity is to deceive and to ever so gradually and slowly drift, drift us away, away from faithfulness. So where are we going to receive uh, the consistent encouragements where are we going to receive the, the consistent challenges that we need, if not in the church? This isn't something, money and generosity is not something that we can think about once, set a plan in motion, and then let it coast on autopilot, assuming that we will be faithful for the rest of our lives in the way we use our money. So from where I sit, money is actually something that as a church, as a community of Christians, we need to talk about more. Uh, but it's not that I'm planning on preaching about money every single week. Um, I don't own enough white suits or private planes to pull that off. So that's not where I'm going with it. Instead, where I really think we need to talk about it more 
is in our discipleship relationships with each other, where we open up this aspect of our lives to other men and women that we are doing life with, that we are in community with, and we use those relationships and those conversations, of course, informed and founded on the word of God to sharpen one another. In an effort to kickstart that this morning, uh, I want you to consider this. When it comes to money, when it comes to generosity, there is a distinct difference between donors and disciples. Donors and disciples. We're going to unpack that in light of our text this morning. But by way of introduction, let me say this. In our culture, we are not lacking examples and ideas about giving money away. We're not lacking examples and ideas about that. Maybe this is true for you, it's true for me. I get at least a couple phone calls a month from my alma mater asking for money. Uh, I'm on an email list for a group that recently launched an emerging philanthropist program. Why they thought I was a good candidate for that, I don't know, but I got that email. Uh, I get lots of appeal letters in my mailbox, perhaps like you do. In many ways, a donor mentality has permeated our thinking as Christians, and mere philanthropy has replaced the generosity that disciples of Jesus are called to. So as we consider this rhythm this morning, let this for you not just be a topical study on money and generosity, let this be for you, for us, an attempt to reclaim and rediscover an essential aspect of what it means to follow Jesus faithfully in our lives. And with that, I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, I'll start in verse 6 and then read down through verse 15. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency... In all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, as you have said from your own mouth, man does not live by bread alone. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So make us hungry for this, your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. As we consider this difference between donors and disciples, this text teaches us that a disciple's generosity is about these three things. God's grace and glory, number one. The greatest gain, number two. And gospel good, 
Number three. So first, a disciple's generosity is about God's grace and God's glory. Uh, Donors give for any number of reasons. Uh, Donors believe in a cause. They care about the people who are going to benefit from a particular kind of work. But underneath the reasons that they give almost always are these hidden and deeper motives. So some give to compensate for something that they lack. They give to redeem themselves for how they've maybe fallen short in another aspect of their lives. Perhaps like many of you have experienced or some of you have experienced in your own lives, uh, wealthy, workaholic kinds of father figures. Or maybe our dads were, were workaholics like that and they were always gone. They spent very little time with us at home, but they used some of the money that they earned at work to buy things for us to compensate for their not being there. I don't know if you've ever heard the uh, history of the Nobel Prizes. But Alfred Nobel uh, invented many things, held a lot of patents. One of the things he invented was dynamite. And he made this huge fortune off of making, off of the patent for dynamite. Because of that, he became known, at least in some circles, as the merchant of death. And that's because he profited from something that people died using and even used to kill each other on some occasions. So when Alfred Nobel's brother died in 1888, a French newspaper uh, mistakenly thought it was Alfred who died instead of his brother, and they wrote a premature obituary. The headline of that obituary read, The Merchant of Death is Dead. And Alfred was so mortified when he read this newspaper headline, so mortified about his legacy, that he then devoted the rest of his life to change it. And when he died about eight years later, he left millions of dollars to fund the awards that are now known as Nobel Prizes. So you hear how he's compensating for something there. He was ashamed and felt guilt about how he had made his money, and so he gave a bunch of it away to try to compensate for that. Other donors give uh, because we live and have lived for many decades now in an achievement society. So, So our existence is measured and justified by what we can accomplish and what we can achieve. Giving money away, therefore, can become just another way to showcase what we've achieved. And that's what's behind, I would argue, a lot of modern-day philanthropy. Uh, It feels a lot less arrogant. It's far more socially acceptable. Uh, But underneath these surface motives of supporting good causes lie these deeper motives of buying social capital or buying respect or reputation or esteem in the eyes of other people. Generosity, by contrast, is truly a rhythm of grace. For whatever reason a donor might give, disciples give as a reflexive response to the grace of God and for the glory of God. Reflexive response to the grace of God and for the glory of God. So look again at your text here in verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So this is the bedrock principle for generosity and money in our lives as Christians. Everything we have is from the hand of God. Everything we have, we have because of God's grace. And the moment that we forget this, the moment that we begin to think we have what we have primarily because of our efforts or our intelligence or whatever else, is the moment that generosity evaporates into mere philanthropy and where we become merely donors instead of disciples. God is a giver. He's a giver. He's been giving since the beginning. He, he gave a good and perfect creation. 
he gave dominion and stewardship of that creation to his image bearers, to men and women. All of that is grace. And then in response to humanity's rebellion against him, he just gave more grace. And in the ultimate display of grace, in the ultimate display of God's generosity, God offers up himself. He gives his one and only son. Earlier in this letter, back in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, that you by his poverty, might become rich. In other words, Jesus left all of the glories, all of the riches of heaven, so that he might accomplish our salvation and might lavish the riches of his grace and his mercy and his acceptance and his love upon you. All of our generosity is a response to that. That's why this is truly a rhythm of grace. We don't give to compensate for something when we're disciples. We don't give to validate ourselves when we're disciples. We don't give to achieve something because everything that we need has already been accomplished for us through the work of Christ. On top of that, disciples give for the glory of God. Look down at verses 12 and 13. Generosity leads to this overflowing of thanksgiving to God. So that those who give glorify God and those who receive glorify God. And notice there that the gratitude of the recipients doesn't terminate on those who give. It doesn't terminate with like a letter of thanks to the donor. I love how author Randy Alcorn puts this in his book called The Treasure Principle. In reference to this text, 2 Corinthians 9, Randy Alcorn says, the greatest passage on giving in all of scripture ends not with congratulations for your generosity. It ends thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So a disciple's generosity is from God and it's through God and it is to God. And this is the only reason why, as Paul says here, we are able to be cheerful givers. There's no joy, there's no cheer, there's no freedom in giving apart from the grace and the glory of God. Listen to what some of the wealthiest people in their day said about their fortunes. And hear if that sounds like cheerful giving to you. William Vanderbilt, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone, there's no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, I'm the most miserable man on earth. John D. Rockefeller, I've made many millions, they have brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile. Henry Ford, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. All of these people were philanthropists, some on a ridiculous scale. Yet what comes through when they talk about their fortunes, when they talk about their wealth, is not cheer and joy, it's miserable burden. Now for a disciple of Jesus, generosity is both our duty and our delight. And you hear both of those, and I hope you heard them in this text. In verse 13, Paul calls generosity part of our submission that comes from a Christian's confession of the gospel. So we give because money is not our God, God is our God, and we give as a matter of submission and obedience to him. But it's a willing and a cheerful kind of obedience. It's, as he says, not reluctant or under compulsion. Now when you hear that, if you're like me, your first thought is, that's a contradiction. Like, how do we give as submission, as obedience, and it be cheerful and willing? But what I would submit to you this morning, that in Paul's mind here, writing as he is under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, there's no contradiction in that. And the only way that I can 
start to put that together in my limited mind and capacity is this, is that by the grace of God and for the glory of God, the things that we must do as Christians and the things that we are excited to do as Christians become one and the same. What we must do is also what we get to do. And the more that we step into that, the more the experience feels like our delight and less like our duty or our obligation. So give, as Paul says here, as you have decided in your heart. But if and when you find in your heart a reluctance, a stinginess, ask yourself, why? Why? Why is there only a sense of duty and compulsion and reluctance? Because ultimately what you will find underneath reluctance is a failure to recognize, to perceive the grace and the glory of God. And when you find yourself there, because that's not an if you find yourself there, it's when, begin by asking God to renew your sense of astonishment that, that he is a giver on the scale that he gives, that he has lavished his grace upon you, and how all of your life and all that you encounter every single day is from him and through him and to him. Because it's this clearer and deeper vision of the grace and glory of God that unleashes a willful and a cheerful giving. It's what transforms that burden of philanthropy to the joy and freedom of a disciple's generosity. Second thing we see here in this text, a disciple's generosity is all about the greatest gain. The greatest gain. Verse six, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. There are a, a lot of passages in the Bible about money and about generosity. Uh, if I'm honest, I almost didn't select this one to talk about this rhythm of grace of generosity because of verse six. Uh, I was nervous, I get nervous when I read these passages because they are almost, this concept of sowing and reaping in verses like this are almost always at the center of what's commonly known as and referred to as the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Anybody familiar with this? If you have TBN and you unfortunately scroll across it sometimes on your TV, then you're familiar with it because it's most of what's on that network. Um, essentially, the prosperity gospel is this. It teaches us that if we give money to God, if we sow our best gift, God will give us material wealth and health and prosperity in return in this life. And that Jesus is suffering means that we need never suffer in our lives. And therefore, uh, if we are poor, if we don't have enough money, if we are sick, the reason is because we don't have enough faith. And the remedy is to give more so that God might actually bless us. Now, the only problem with all of that is the entire Bible. <laughs> and the experience of faithful Christians in every era for 2,000 years. It's, what, let me say this. What the prosperity gospel teaches is often a half-truth. It's often a half-truth. Half that when we offer our lives, when we give our money, when we sow, to use this agricultural metal, metaphor, which is part of the Bible, we reap a reward. Now that is partially true. But as J.I. Packer puts it, half-truths masquerading as whole-truths are whole lies. And so the question is, what is the reward, and also, when is the reward? 
Prosperity theology teaches us that the reward is material and that the reward is now. Scripture teaches us that the reward is primarily a spiritual and an eternal one. And that when that reward is now, when we do experience material wealth and prosperity and reward in this life, it is only to further fuel our pursuits of generosity. So consider what this text says about this. Verse 8, God makes all grace abound so that having sufficiency, you may abound in every good work. So God's going to provide, and he's going to provide sufficiently. We get to enjoy his good gifts. But there's a big difference between sufficiency and enjoyment of what God has provided and opulence. There's a difference, big difference there. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The focus there is spiritual and eternal, that we will be rich not in material wealth, but in righteousness, rich in good deeds, rich in faithful obedience. And then verse 11, you will be enriched in every way. Now here in verse 11, the focus clearly is financial and material reward in this life, but for what purpose? It says it right after that, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. It's so that we can be increasingly generous with what God has given us. A concept that I have struggled with and honestly kept at arm's length that I think we need to learn from this. If you're not inclined to the prosperity gospel, then especially pay attention to this part. Faithful discipleship still pursues gain through generosity. I've been hesitant to embrace that because of what prosperity theology teaches about that. But we as Christians still sow to reap a reward. It's just a different kind of gain. And I'll say it like this. Donors settle for an immediate return. Disciples seek the greatest gain. Donors settle for an immediate return. Disciples seek the greatest gain. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The fascinating thing about that is that Jesus still has this treasure mentality and that rewards is not just a man-made motivational tool. Rewards are God's idea. It's just that the focus of God's rewards are eternal and that Jesus says it plainly in that text, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Some of you are perhaps familiar with Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary to Ecuador uh, who was martyred there in the jungles of Ecuador in the 1950s. Uh, and maybe you've heard his famous quote, probably the quote he's most famous for. He is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Often, if you've heard that quote, you've heard it as a statement of incredible self-denial and sacrifice. And that makes sense, especially from the mouth of a missionary martyr. But Randy Alcorn, in his book, rightly points out, Jim Elliott was still thinking about gain. He was still thinking about gain. He wanted to gain something. It's just that he was far more concerned with gaining treasures in heaven, treasures he could not lose, than gaining wealth or even preserving his own life here on earth. So what I would put to you this morning, if you're not inclined toward prosperity theology, is this. Don't shy away from the passages in your Bible about rewards. And this is where people like me who don't talk about money enough can also do damage. Uh, the answer is not for us to keep passages like this at arm's length because they've been butchered, because they've been abused by peddlers of the prosperity gospel. 
And what I would say to you is there is a need in our time and in our day in the state of Christianity that has so much prosperity theology in it for the charlatans who preach it not to have the last word on it. And for us to really understand what God is teaching, what scripture is teaching when it talks about sowing and reaping. The whole truth, not the half truth, the whole truth is this, that in both our duty and our delight, we give bountifully. We give reflexively responding to the grace of God and mirroring the grace of God. Sometimes when we do that, we don't get richer at all. We get poorer and we suffer more. Sometimes we stay at the exact same income and socioeconomic level. Other times, God does give more money and more material wealth, perhaps a huge amount of it, but whatever it is for you, whatever the circumstances are, it is all so that your eyes will remain fixed on him and fixed on eternity. Regardless of how rich or poor you find yourself in this life, your greatest gain will always and forever be God and his kingdom. So don't settle for less. Don't settle for the immediate return. Give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. So bountifully, be generous with all that you have so that you might store up and bountifully reap treasures in heaven. Third and finally, the disciples' generosity is about gospel good. Gospel good. Uh, there is much good that is accomplished when donors give. Uh, a lot of the causes that exist in our world today, a lot of the nonprofit organizations that are out there, contribute immensely to the thriving of people, to the thriving of society. So as you're hearing me contrast donors and disciples this morning, uh, don't hear me write off charity and philanthropy like it has no good and no place in the world. Instead, what I hope you're hearing from me is that there is something more and something beyond being merely a donor. And it is this something that you are invited and you are called into as a disciple of Jesus Christ. There are a couple glimpses of exactly that in this text. For one, verse 12. The, this ministry of this, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but consider this. Generosity is ministry. Generosity is ministry. It's part of the ministry of the gospel. When we looked at the rhythm of mission a couple weeks ago, we saw how the ministry of the gospel always involves both words and deeds. We enact the kingdom of God in our deeds so that others might experience it. We also proclaim the kingdom of God with our words so that other people might believe and enter the kingdom themselves. You hear both of those things come through in this text. The ministry of generosity, Paul says, supplies the needs of the saints. And the backdrop for all of what Paul's writing here is that he's encouraging the Christians here in Corinth to give generously to the suffering church in Jerusalem. In another one of Paul's letters where he's also writing about the same thing, he says that my God will supply all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So we hear Paul write often about the promises of God. God promises provision for his people. And that provision is going to be experienced by these suffering Christians in Jerusalem, in part because of the generosity of the Corinthian church. So they are, and we get to be by the grace of God, part of God's promise of, of provision to people when we give generously. But it's more than meeting just the material needs. 
as the second half of verse 12 there says, the ministry of generosity also overflows in thanks to God. It leads both the giver and the recipients to praise God. And so it affirms and it strengthens the faith of the recipient. And they become people who don't just live by bread alone, don't just live by those gifts of money alone, but who live by the words of promise that flow from the mouth of God. So pastor uh, from South Africa, I think he lives in the States now, but named Ross Lester, and he has this great line about money. The first time I read it, it's stuck in my mind since. He says this, money is mission ammunition. With it, you can blow big holes in the gates of hell. Money is mission ammunition. With it, you can blow big holes in the gates of hell. It's a great line. And I would invite you to think of it this way. Donors do good. They very often do good. A disciple's generosity serves gospel good. It blows big holes in the gates of hell by helping people both experience the kingdom of God and proclaiming the kingdom of God so that they might believe and enter. Another way that generosity fuels gospel good. Look down at verse 14. Speaking about the recipients, Paul says, they long for you, they pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So a disciple's generosity creates and it deepens bonds of affection between giver and recipient. It it cultivates mutual love. It's relational rather than transactional. And so many times in our day and age, the abuses that happen in philanthropy, or if you've read books like When Helping Hurts or, or books of a similar genre, when people give lots of money to support good causes, often the harm that it does is completely unintentional, but it's done when the gifts become more transactional or used to, to establish a hierarchy rather than mutual love. They become transactional rather than relational. If we were to go back to the beginning of chapter 8, we'll read how Paul uses the example of the Macedonians to prompt the Corinthians to give. And there he says that the Macedonians, they're not just giving according to and beyond their ability. He says they are giving themselves. In other words, they're not just giving their money. They are personally invested in this cause. They're personally invested in the well-being of the people that they're giving the money to. And this is really where the distinction between donors and disciples is often most evident. Donors often use money to maintain distance. But disciples give not only their money, they give their very selves. Donors use money to maintain distance. Disciples give their money and themselves. A lot of us in this room, it's not particularly difficult to give a little bit of money away. For some of you, I know that's really, that's, that is true. For many, it's not true. But the question is, is that money given with a sincere love for the people who are receiving it? One example, and maybe you've experienced this the way that I have, you're walking down the street and you encounter someone who's homeless. Or you're driving in your car and you pull up to a stoplight or stop sign and there's someone standing there with a sign that says anything helps. Nearly every social worker, every government and nonprofit expert who works with the homeless, who works with people in poverty, says that cash is the worst possible thing to give in that situation. Uh, It doesn't actually help. It hurts people. It enables people. It often doesn't get used to pay for the real needs that they have. But you're still tempted in that moment, perhaps, to open up your wallet and give them some cash. Why? 
Well, at least in part because it's easy. It's easy. You can hold out a dollar or two and you can keep on going. You don't have to exchange any words. You don't even have to exchange eye contact if you don't want to. Compassion for those in need is right. But are we willing to offer not only our money, but ourselves? Are we willing to offer love? When we give to a person, when the recipient is a person, that means seeking to cultivate a relationship with them, to actually get to know them and to express love for them. When giving to an organization, that means being personally immersed and invested in that work. You pray for that work. You maybe volunteer and serve in that work. You stay up to date with what's going on. Our lives become affected there, either way, by how that person's doing or by how that organization is doing. And so giving money for us can either jumpstart and fuel that, or it can be an intentional step of distancing ourselves. Like just take the money and then leave me alone. I have my own life and my own plans and I'd rather get on with that. Take a couple of dollars, take my check, let me stay impartial and distant from that. But that's not the call of a disciple. What we see here is a disciple's generosity fuels gospel good. And since the gospel is relational and not transactional, so is our generosity. I'll close with this. Um, I've been reflecting a lot on generosity, as it might be obvious to you this morning. I'm reflecting a lot on that this week. And I've been reminded in that of the real privilege that it is uh, to be a pastor, to be an elder of this church. Because as I look at our budget, uh, as I consider the people that God has brought to this church community and the ways that we've used money over these six plus years or so, I'm really encouraged. I think, by and large, there's a lot of generosity that God has brought into our lives and into this church. We've been able to be generous as a church to support great people and great causes. And we'll get to see that and celebrate some of that even today after the service in our vision and budget meeting. Dan will share some specific examples of how we've been able to be generous and give money away. But both the duty and the delight of disciples is to continue growing, is to continue excelling in this rhythm of grace, to keep using what God gives us to abound in more and more good works. So individually and collectively, what I would say to you is let's not stop by saying congratulations for your generosity. Let's stop by saying, as Paul concludes this passage, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for what he has done, what he's doing, and what that might lead to even more in the days to come. The generous giver is God. The generous giver is God. And however many billions of dollars big philanthropists might give, we will always be able to get our minds around that. But the generosity of God, who left heaven, who left the riches of that to become a man, to die a death that he did not deserve to die on the cross in our place, we will never wrap our minds fully around that. It is truly, as Paul puts it, an inexpressible gift. And there is no end to the astonishment that we might experience at the generosity of God. So be astonished. As one author puts it, gaze upon Christ long enough and you will become more of a giver. Give long enough and you will become more like Christ. 
So may we give by the grace of God and for the glory of God. May we pursue the greatest gain, storing up for ourselves, not treasures here on earth, but treasures in heaven. And for gospel good, may we give generously, not only of our money, but of our very selves. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, you are a good father. And every good and perfect gift, as James tells us, comes from you. You are the generous one. You are the giver. Jesus, your life, your death, your resurrection is the gift. And as you have abounded in grace to us through that work, make us generous. Astonish us at your generosity. And help us to be those who are increasingly generous with what you provide. I pray that we would experience regular encouragement for how we're seeing that play out in our lives and in this church family. I pray we'd experience regular challenge about how we can do that more effectively, how we can be more generous than we are right now. I pray that in all of it, it would be so, immer- so directly and explicitly connected to the grace and the glory that is yours. And as we come to this table, we remind ourselves, we are reminded that we are those who are dependent upon that ongoing pouring out of your grace. And so we come, not in our strength, but in our dependence, asking that you would be gracious to us yet again, asking you that you would continue to transform us into faithful disciples in all aspects of our lives, not only the way we use our money. And we pray all these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.